What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. Delighted to be with you on this Friday afternoon. If you've never heard this program before, you are in for a treat. It's a program on a Catholic network for non-Catholics. Well, how does that work? Let's say that you are a non-Catholic, maybe a former Catholic, maybe never been a Catholic, uh, but you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith and you just can't get that question answered to your satisfaction. Well, we can help you out with that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code, which is 1, and then 205-271-2985. You can always text us, uh, or send us an email, rather, at the address for that, CTC at EWTN.com, CTC at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky our phone screener, Jeff Burson's on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now, live just for you. Uh, Put your question for us in the comments box, if you would, please, and then Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in Studio One. Hopefully we can answer it on today's program. I'm Tom Price along with... Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. A kind of uh, basking in the afterglow of our radio conference for all of our affiliates coast to coast. Yeah, what a great time getting to meet folks from all over the country, see old friends, uh, give out some awards, recognize people for their longevity in Catholic radio. Lots of fun. Also great to see a lot of young folks uh, you know, you know, manning the trenches here and, 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 you know, doing the work, maybe taking over from somebody who has uh, retired from, from the vineyards, as that's it right. were. We don't want Catholic Radio to be a one-generation thing. Oh, no. And that's, you know, I, 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 th- there are some folks there that got awards last night for, you know, 15, 20 years of yes. tenure. And then there were folks that were at get the five-year award and then and then some that were younger than that yeah so it's fantastic here's an interesting email that we received from thomas who says dr anders i know that catholics don't believe in the rapture as many protestants do but i'm not sure about the tribulation how do catholics interpret jesus's signs of the end times in matthew 24 thanks thomas yeah thanks i appreciate the question so again Anytime you ask the question, how do Catholics interpret blank, and they give you a Bible verse, the Church doesn't dogmatically define the interpretation of every verse of the Bible. What the Church does is proclaim the dogmas of the faith. Here are the essentials of the Christian religion that everybody has to believe. Um, and, And not every Scripture verse impinges upon one of those dogmatic declarations. And so there are it, differences of opinion among Catholics are allowable when it comes to these kinds of things. What, you know, what is the nature of the eschatonic, you know, in, in the fine details? Uh, there's not necessarily a single Catholic answer to that question. Um, but most Catholics would, would take Jesus' word seriously, and he speaks about a time of tribulation before his return. Uh, and that we find that in several places in the New Testament. And so there is a, there's an understanding of a period of great tribulation that will come upon the church. Now, 
it, you know, it, it would be a matter of debate to how exactly do you understand those words? You know, we, are we looking at, you know, nuclear annihilation and apocalyptic stuff, you know, like imminently before Jesus's return? Or could we interpret that more broadly as the state of persecution and woe that seems to be the plot of Christians, the plight of Christians so many centuries throughout the world? And that, that would be a more open question. Okay. Well, very good. Thomas, thank you so much uh, for your email. Interesting one here from Stephen. Dr. Anders, I'm currently watching a movie review on the film Nefarious, featuring an exorcist. He had mentioned how suicide is considered to be a mortal sin. While I'm a convert of about 13 years, I've heard many arguments on the subject of suicide in the viewpoint of the church over the years. My overall take is that in most cases, Victims of suicide are either likely not Catholic or not practicing Catholics. I have chosen this approach because of the three conditions of a sin required in order for it to be mortal. That is, if not all non-Catholics are not aware of these conditions. So, I guess the question I'm trying to convey is, if non-Catholics aren't aware of what mortal sin is and its criteria, how would they know if they're committing it? And how would suicide be considered a mortal sin if these conditions aren't known by non-Catholics, especially if they were found, if they were not of a sound mind when it's committed? Thanks, Stephen Kay. Yeah, thanks. Okay, let me, let me disentangle two sets of questions here. And one of them has to do with the nature of mortal sin and the status of someone who is unfamiliar with Catholic teaching. That's one set of questions. And okay. the other is the moral status of suicide. So it would be a mistake to think that in order to commit a mortal sin, you have to be a knowledgeable Catholic, hmm. right? And that—that that, I don't know if that's what you're saying, but it seems that it could be implied in your question that unless you've had your conscience properly informed by the Catholic Church, that you're not actually responsible for your actions. And that's not the position, right? If that were yeah. the case, you know, that we wouldn't need forgiveness in the atoning death of Christ, right, to reconcile yes. us to God. So you can be guilty of mortal sin and not know it, all right? You don't have to have the category mortal sin in your mind to be guilty of a gravely immoral act. What you do need to know is that you have done something immoral. Okay. That that is necessary. And and even then, even then there is a is a little bit it's a bit vaguer because you can commit a, a gravely immoral act in ignorance without your ignorance being invincible. Hmm. In other words, if you if you had the evidence before you of the of the acts uh, grave immorality, but for some reason you chose not to inform yourself about the moral status of your act, uh-huh. then then that doesn't let you off the hook. You know, uh, I'm trying to think if I can come up with an analogy. Um, um, you, you know, uh, if somebody confronts you with a moral choice, and mm-hmm. you think, well, you know, there there might be there might be a real moral significance to this. You know, maybe somebody offers. Let me, here's an example. Let's say you, you know, somebody comes to you with an investment opportunity, uh-huh. and it like looks like it's going to be a pretty darn good return. And you think, oh well, you know, this maybe this investment opportunity will involve me in an intrinsically immoral act. I think I won't look under the hood. Oops. You know, I'm I'm not going to investigate that question because I don't want my conscience to be bothered by it. Yeah. So I'll go I'll go invest in this business or whatever, and then you know come to find out later it's doing something intrinsically immoral mm, that I'm yeah. that I'm signing on to. Well, you know, my decision to not inform my conscience doesn't excuse me. Okay. All right. Um, so here comes the break. I'll, I'll come back to this question of mortal sin, knowledge, culpability, and how it impinges on suicide afterwards. Very good. Uh, we'll also talk with uh, Chris in San Antonio, John in Washington, and uh, your line uh, waiting for you at 833 
288-EWTN here on Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Stay with us. Call to Communion in progress on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Before we get to the phones, we were uh, kind of unpacking an email from Stephen regarding mortal sin and suicide. Yeah, thanks. So Stephen wanted to know about the moral status of suicide. He also wanted to know about the moral status of people who are not Catholic and unfamiliar with the Church's teaching about suicide. Could they be guilty of the mortal sin if they mm-hmm. hadn't been instructed that mortal sin was wrong? So I was trying to unpack the way culpability for sin works in Catholic theology. Um, when your ignorance is culpable, when your ignorance is invincible, there are definitely people who can perform gravely immoral acts in ignorance and be excused because they didn't know better, right? Mm. Um, And that would include potentially uh, suicides. However, um, the Catholic Church believes in something called natural law. Natural law is the idea that there are exigencies built into our nature, into the fabric of reality, that make moral demands upon us, whether or not we know anything about God or, or Christian revelation, and uh, that we have a moral obligation to seek our own and other people's flourishing. And the sort of the first principle of that would be this instinct for self-preservation that we have. I mean, be, you know, if you don't have the instinct for self-preservation, nothing, you, there is no other good you can have in life. I mean, you, yeah. can't, you can't be worrying about a good education or having offspring or living in society if you don't stay alive, right? Yeah. So that's really kind of ground zero. The, the dignity of life is kind of ground zero for, for the natural moral law. So just because you don't know Catholic teaching, you haven't been exposed to the Catholic Church, doesn't mean that you can't infer the moral obligation to stay alive, right? Now, that, that, that notwithstanding the, the details of the natural law, it would be theoretically possible for somebody to be ignorant of that conclusion, not fully culpable for their act of suicide. But uh-huh. you could be culpable as well. So just because you're not Catholic doesn't let you off the hook. Yeah. Suicide is an objectively immoral act. You, you're not supposed to commit suicide. But there are mitigating circumstances. So a person could, A, be invincibly ignorant through no fault of their own, uh, or two, they might not be in the right mind. And, and, you know, probably a lot of people who commit suicide are not in their right mind they're under some extreme psychological distress or disturbance. That means they're not, they don't really freely have, have use of their, all of their faculties, and that also excuses from sin. Um, and then, uh, is that it? Did I, did I answer all the questions, Tom? I think it okay, did. I think we covered it. All right, very good. And uh, we'll uh, go to the phones if you're ready now at uh, 833-288-EWTN. We're going to begin with Chris in San Antonio, listening on the great Guadalupe Network. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Yes, so I've heard it said that Jesus um, dying on the cross foils the plan of the devil by conquering death. And my question is, did the devil not know that Jesus was God? Okay. Um, Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, there are are traditions in Catholicism that, and traditions in the plural, I mean, I'm not, this is not the determinative tradition. There There are definitely elements of the Catholic tradition that would maintain that the incarnation and the death of Christ was a kind of trick pulled on Satan. Um, uh, there's a model of the atonement that we find in early Christianity that uh, that Christ's humanity was a kind of bait or a hook, you know, like uh, a kind of bait and the, his divinity a hook to sort of snare Satan unawares. Uh, so that that is a position that has been held by some Catholic theologians. Now, 
On the other side, if you consider that what's the evidence in the other direction, would be the plain teaching of Christ about his own divinity. And uh, clearly the devils in sacred scripture are represented as knowing who Jesus is. When he shows up, they say, we know who you are. <laughs> You're the Holy One of God, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, did they, how much do they understand about the doctrine of the, of the incarnation? I mean, um, I'd say that's kind of an open question. Okay. Chris, is that helpful for you? Yes, very helpful. Thank you. All right, very good. Thanks so much, so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. A few words here for our friends at Catholic News Agency, CNA. Hey, you can rely on CNA to cover the mission act activities of the Catholic Church, including the social, political, moral, and cultural issues from a perspective of faith. And of course, you can trust CNA. For the latest Catholic news, visit catholicnewsagency.com, an online service from EWTN News. And right now, you can get timely news updates directly to your email inbox. Visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. All right, very good. Back to the phones now for John in Washington, listening on the great Divine Mercy Broadcasting. Hey there, John, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yes, sir. What has been called the Protestant protest since Martin Luther in the day that he nailed the 99 theses on the Catholic Church wall. And I didn't come to faith in Christ until I was 28. Uh, I was loosely exposed to the Catholic Church. My mother, being what she calls a Roman Catholic, took us to Midnight Mass a couple times. That was about it. We never read the Bible, prayed, or talked about faith in our home. And so when I became a Christian, uh, I, I was in a denomination that was very uh, staunch that the Catholic Church was the, the whore of Babylon, that they were leading people astray. And then as I started to listen to some Catholics, I'm like, boy, they sound like they've got faith in <laughs> me, you know, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, and then watching what Pope Francis is doing now with compromising in the area of what I would consider the Book of Jude, when we're warned to contend for the faith against those who creep in and say that sexual immorality is going to be accepted with homosexuality and those types of things. I was just wondering, where do you stand on that issue, and also with all the canonical laws that could be termed as works religion? And I, I believe that was the very uh, purpose of the Protestant protest, is works versus grace, right? Yeah, thanks. A lot of questions here I need to unpack, so I really appreciate them, and I'll, I'll dig in once, one after the other. So let me let me first talk about the Protestant Reformation, since you bring it up, and, and uh, you're correct that at least the way Martin Luther construed the Reformation, he held that the most important article of faith in the Christian religion was the doctrine of justification by faith alone without regard to uh, the morality of our human acts. And he thought that free justification was uh, was the bee's knees. And he once said that if the Pope would acknowledge justification by faith, that he, Martin Luther, would, would kiss his feet and carry him, you know, in his hands. Uh, in 1525, Luther said, you know, people want to argue about the papacy and indulgences and purgatory. Luther said uh, these things are mere trifles and not worthy of debate in comparison to this other doctrine of justification by faith. So that was clearly Luther's position. You're, you're right to construe it that way. Now, 
as a Catholic, looking at the Protestant Reformation, and, and I should let you know that what made me Catholic, I'm a convert to the faith myself, was a, was a lifetime of study of the Protestant Reformation. That's what I did my, my doctoral work in, wrote a dissertation on Calvin. So I, I, know, the, I know the Protestant position quite well. Um, but what brought me around to Catholicism was the realization, first of all, that Luther's position on St. Paul, his reading of Romans and Galatians, was a complete novelty in the history of Christianity. And uh, this wasn't my judgment alone, but I found it in the works of great Protestant historians of dogma. So people like Adolf von Harnack, uh, you know, 100 years ago, and more recently Alistair McGrath, professor at Oxford University, who wrote a great two-volume history of the doctrine of justification, uh, freely admits that Luther's position was a novelty, that no one before Luther anywhere in the world held to this doctrine. And that was, uh, that was kind of interesting, obviously, to say the least. And, uh, and as I did my own study of Christian history, uh, the further I went back in history, the, the less like Lutheranism the world looked. Now, the, the Protestant explanation for that, of course, is that, um, uh, that the Catholic Church came in and, and covered up the gospel with a lot of tradition and kind of obscured it, and the, the Reformers had to come along and blow away the smoke and let the pure light of the gospel shine forth. Well, the, for the history itself didn't seem to confirm that, because... As I said, it's, it's not like the earlier you go in history, the more like Protestantism it looks. It, it turned out to be the opposite. The earlier I got in history, the less like Protestantism it looked, all the way back to the New Testament. So I said, well, you know, maybe everybody's wrong. Maybe, maybe everybody since St. Paul got this thing wrong, and so Luther really did recover something of biblical religion. So, you know, I, I plowed into St. Paul again, aided by the best in modern Protestant scholarship, not Catholic uh -huh. scholarship, Protestant scholars. Okay. And I was reading men like N.T. Wright and James Dunn and Christer Stendhal and E.P. Sanders, um, uh, and uh, really, you know, really celebrated Protestant biblical scholars. And what I found out was that, lo and behold, they also thought that Luther had gotten Paul wrong, right? And, oh. and that the, the Protestant position... Uh, uh, really wasn't faithful to the to the teaching of St. Paul or to the sacred scripture. And it also reflected on the fact that Luther's Reformation took place in a time and place. It was in, of course, in, in, in Germany in the 16th century in Western Europe. There were a lot of other places in the world that had the Bible and did not have the Pope. A lot of other non-Catholic traditions out there that had the Bible and had had it for 1,500 years throughout the world. If the Bible was so clear in teaching Lutheran doctrine, mm -hmm. it seemed re reasonable to me to assume that maybe not in the West, if the Pope really was a tyrant keeping everybody locked down, but maybe in Egypt, which had nothing to do with the Pope, maybe in <laughs> Byzantium, you know, maybe in Syria, maybe in us Syria, maybe in Western China, where there was a thriving Christian community for a while, maybe in North Africa, maybe someplace in the world, someone who, who was reading the Bible, and maybe a Greek speaker who was reading it in the original languages, would uh, would have an epiphany and realize Luther's doctrine of justification by faith. And yet that didn't happen nowhere in the world except Lutheran Germany. Mm. And I found out there's very specific reasons for that, that there was a, a, a very unique historical provenance for Luther's intellectual development that's deeply related to developments in 14th and 15th century scholasticism and mysticism and the Renaissance that didn't occur anyplace else in history. And so I really had to situate his thing within his own private psychology and his own historical situation. It really didn't reflect historical Christianity, the early church. So that was, that, that was kind of a problem. And what, what did Paul actually mean when he said that we're justified by faith and not by works of the law? Well, I'll tell you the way every Christian in the world read that text for the first four centuries of Christianity. When Paul says we're justified by faith and not by works of the law, 
works of the law refers to those things that differentiate Jew from Gentile. Uh, so, of okay. course, the question that Paul had to deal with, and all of early Christianity had to deal with, is when Gentiles come to believe in Christ, do they have to get circumcised and follow the other prescriptions of the Mosaic Code? That was a pretty live issue. We had a whole council about it in Acts chapter 15. And Paul says, no, no, faith in Christ is enough for them to be included in the people of God. But it doesn't obviate the significance of morality for salvation. In fact, Paul says explicitly in Romans 2.13, it's not by hearing the law, it is by obeying the law that one will be declared righteous. And to those who by patient endurance in doing good seek glory and honor immortality, God will give eternal life. And so the way salvation works for St. Paul is that through faith in Christ, it's not the law, it's through faith in Christ, God pours out his spirit into people's hearts. Romans 5.5, the love of God poured into your heart. Romans 2, 25 to 29 says that those who have been reborn in the Spirit keep the righteous requirements of the law. That that infusion of righteousness into one's soul, transforming the heart, transforming the consciousness, such that the love of God and neighbor now flows from within us as an interior principle, is now able to keep the moral demands of the law, what Paul calls the righteous requirements of the law, without having to worry about the, the ritual prescriptions like circumcision and so forth. So that was a radically different vision of salvation that I got from St. Paul. It's, I realized that the Lutheran position, the Protestant position, was pretty off, and so ultimately came to the Catholic faith. Now, you, you also asked me, what do I think about Pope Francis and your allegation that Francis is compromising historic Christianity's teaching about human sexuality? Well, I've, I've read the Pope quite extensively, and in point of fact, he has said the opposite of that. Uh, he, has made, he has underscored the fact that the church's moral teaching on the nature of persons and the nature of marriage and the nature of human sexuality is inviolable, cannot be changed. And, uh, and so that, I think that allegation is just false. Now, I, I understand, look, the media, the secular media in particular, has a vested interest in construing the Pope in a certain way because it serves their ideological agenda. Mm. And, of course, the, the dominant cultural opinion among the media makers and the elites is they're in favor of changing historic Christian morality. And so they want to construe the Pope that way. Uh, I think that's a misreading of Pope Francis. I think the proper reading of Pope Francis is that he recognizes that outside of the Christian Church, there are many people who do not live uh, their moral lives in accord with Christian teaching, and that while... You know, putting up your the stop sign and saying no to immoral behavior may be, may be true. It may not always be pastorally effective in converting people to living a Christian form of life. I mean, that's my experience. You go walk up to somebody who's doing something that you disapprove of and tell them, you're doing wrong, and see how often <laughs> they, they change their behavior. Yeah. And so he has talked about, say, let's say, creative pastoral approaches to reaching people who don't want to be reached and a re express a recognition that sometimes moral progress per com comes gradually and that we have to make do with incremental steps in the moral life and to encourage pastors to keep that incremental and gradualistic approach in mind when attempting to minister to people who may not be living the full truth of the Christian life. But that is a far cry from changing the Church's moral teaching. Yes, indeed. Uh, John, thanks so much for your call today from Washington State. Uh, appreciate hearing from you. And if you've got a question for Dr. David Anders, we would love to talk with you this afternoon. A couple of lines are open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 
288-3986. If you would prefer to send us an email, the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to be talking with Robin, a first-time caller from Southwest Iowa, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Also, Jose in Boston, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130, and uh, Area in Jackson, Mississippi, listening on the Great Good Shepherd Radio. So we're looking forward. Oh, Aria, that is the, that's the way to pronounce that. All right, we got it right. Hopefully uh, you can stay with us for the last half of today's Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called a communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. It's looking very positive for that. 833-288-3986. Hey, our friends at Catholic Spirit Radio in Central and Northern Illinois need to hear from you next week. They are airing their 2023 Fall Appeal next Wednesday and Thursday. Mark that down. If you're listening to us in Bloomington or Normal, Pontiac, Lincoln, Joliet, anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. We're going to go back to uh, Robin listening uh, in uh, southwest Iowa on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Robin, what's on your mind today? I was just wondering, um, I'm not a Catholic but I am Christian, baptized, and I enjoy listening to the rosary. I try to follow along and say it. Uh-huh. I didn't know if that counted uh, up in, you know, or it's like, nope, that one, cancel that one out. Not Catholic. Oh, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate it. Delightful question. So, yeah, wonderful question. So, so fortunately, you do not have to be a Catholic for God to hear your prayers. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. if you think about... All of the saints of the Old Testament, of course, they weren't Catholics. They were not baptized. They, they, they didn't have explicit historical knowledge of Jesus. Um, and not only the Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament, but many of the righteous pagans that they interacted with. Mm. You know, were, I mean, take Job, for example. Job's not a Hebrew. Uh, uh, you know, uh, for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, is not a Hebrew in sight, you know, so... Uh, and, of course, God hears those prayers. God hears those prayers. And, in fact, even among Catholics, like if... The, the first prayer that you pray, you know, which is God, you know, give me grace. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Um, that, you know, that 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 comes for many people before baptism, and the Catholic Church says, yeah, that's also a work of grace. That's God drawing you to Himself. So, yeah, and even among Catholics, when it comes to praying the Rosary, you know, it's not praying the Rosary is not like a a commercial transaction, where I where I you know shell out my beads and and God rewards me with you know with whatever temporal blessings I've asked for um, the, the rosary is a, a form of meditation upon the life of Jesus and the Blessed Virgin Mary and like all forms of mental and contemplative prayer the, the purpose is really to encourage me to have a change of heart to 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 move myself affectively towards God and the love of neighbor and and uh, and that you know that can be that's useful no matter what your state of life. If yeah. I'm reflecting on the life of Jesus and the saints and Blessed Virgin Mary in order to sort of change my attitude on things, um, that you know, there's no there's no absolute right and absolute wrong way to do that, and it's as effective as your disposition allows it to be. 
Yes, indeed. Is that helpful for you, Robin? Yes. Yes, thank you very much. You are most welcome. Thanks for your call. It is called to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number, and there is a line or two available for you, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Aria is listening in Jackson, Mississippi on Good Shepherd Radio. Aria, what's on your mind today? Hi, I'm actually in Michigan. Michigan. Um, All right, very good. Yes, Dr. Anders, I love this show. Thank you for all you do. Um, I was wondering how to explain to a Protestant that sola scriptura is wrong. Ooh, one of my favorite questions of yeah, all time. Yeah. yeah, thank you. So a lot of ways to do this. The, the easiest thing, I think, is to point out that it's not what Jesus taught. It's not what the prophets taught. And here's, here's how I would go about doing that, right? Because if you say, well, Jesus didn't teach sola scriptura, most Protestants will come back immediately and say, well, he quoted scripture all the time. He quoted scripture all the time, which he did. And that's really a category confusion, because for Christ to cite scripture as authoritative isn't at issue. Catholics also believe that scripture is authoritative. The question isn't whether it's authoritative. The question is, what is the nature of its authority? Is the Bible and here we mean the 66-book canon of the Bible that Protestants advert to, Yeah, is that list of books indicated by God as the rule of faith? You know, did God ever reveal, when you have a question about the Christian faith or you want to pass on the content of Christian faith, your, your go-to source is this list of biblical books, this Bible? And of course, he never does. He never does that. So there's no, there's no divine revelation where God indicates that that's the case. Now, here, what, what that means is that Sola Scriptura involves itself in a, in a performative contradiction. Because here's what Sola Scriptura teaches. In order for something to be an article of faith in the Christian religion, it, you must find it within the content of the Bible. You have to at least implicitly be able to find it in the Bible. If you can't find it in the Bible, it cannot be put forward as an article of faith. But Protestants all hold the doctrine of Sola Scriptura to be an article of faith. And yet it fails its own criterion, so it's internally inconsistent. Um, instead of giving us the Bible, Christ was explicit in how he wanted the faith to be passed on authoritatively. He, he said to the disciples, go into all nations, make disciples, teach them everything I've commanded you. And everything he commanded was oral, mm-hmm. and I'll be with you to the end of the age. So Christ, he authorized specific individuals to hand on a deposit of oral tradition and promise to accompany them forever. That's sounding a lot like the Catholic conception of the magisterium. So not only did Christ not teach the principle of the Bible alone, but he actually gave us a different principle for handing on the faith. So that's one way of handling it. Here's some other arguments that you would bring against Sola Scriptura. Um, uh, One that I used many years ago on a friend of mine, and it brought him to Catholicism. I said, you're a Protestant. He said, yeah, that's right. I said, you believe in the Bible alone. He says, that's right. I said, how do you know the difference between a dogma and an opinion? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, a dogma is what all Christians have to believe. You believe in the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement, or the Death of Christ, you name it. Opinion is something that we could disagree on, and it wouldn't really threaten anything. How do you know the difference? And he kind of scratched his head and said, huh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and about six months later, he was Catholic. Mm. And here's why that works. Because, see, Protestants recognize that they themselves will disagree about the meaning of biblical texts. Uh, they, they know they don't all understand the Bible the same way, but the way they get around it is sometimes is to say, well, you know, we agree on the essentials. 
Okay, so how do you know what that list of essentials is? Here's the, here's the dirty little secret. The Bible doesn't tell you. Mm. The Bible doesn't say, here is the list of essential doctrines you all have to agree on. But they all have a list. They all propose a list. So they must be getting that list from something other than the Bible itself. And they are, of course, they're getting it from their tradition. And it gets worse, because when you ask Protestants, okay, what's your list of essentials? They, they all have different lists. What counts as essential for one group is different than what counts as essential for another. I'll give you an example. In the 16th century, all Protestants thought the question of the Eucharist was essential for salvation. Virtually no Protestant thinks that today. Mm. Right? And so, which is it? Is it essential or not? Yeah. And you can't, just, you can't just assert an answer. You have to have a principle behind it that's, that's grounded itself in Revelation. So the principle of Sola Scriptura does not allow you to know what is essential to the Christian faith. At all, at all. I mean, not, and notwithstanding the fact that there are zillions of disagreements among Protestants. Here's another problem with Sola Scriptura. If you propose that the Bible is your rule of faith, okay, what's the Bible? How do you know the contents of the Bible? I mean, historically, lots of books have been proposed <coughs> as belonging to the biblical canon. Not all of the books that were proposed are currently in the Bible. Some of the books that are currently in the Bible haven't always been there. How do you know you have the right list? Now, at least one Protestant theologian, he's dead now, a man named R.C. Sproul, bit the bullet and said, yeah, we don't know. We don't have an infallible list of books, because he recognized that he couldn't get there from the, from the principle of Sola Scriptura. Most Protestants aren't willing to go there. Um, and, uh, but the, real, the reality is, since the Bible doesn't name its own table of contents, the only way you can have confidence in the list of biblical books is if you get that list from sacred tradition. So merely the existence of the Bible uh, is a contradiction to the doctrine of Sola Scriptura because it depends upon the witness of sacred tradition. And if you don't accept sacred tradition, then, then how on earth can you have an authoritative list, list of biblical books? All right, so, I mean, the, the reasons to reject Sola Scriptura are mammoth. The most important one is Jesus didn't teach it. He taught something else. The second one is that it's, it's, it's not functional, you, you can't actually have certainty in your act of faith and know what's essential to the Christian religion by relying on that principle. Um, and the third one is you can't even get to the Bible. The Bible itself rests on the bedrock of sacred tradition. Yeah. So lots of reasons to reject Sola Scriptura. Is that helpful for you, Aria? Yes, very. Thank you. Appreciate your call there from Michigan, listening on the great Good Shepherd Radio. Call to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Be sure to join us for The Journey Home. That's coming up Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television. This week, David Dean joins John Mark Grodi to share how he and others became Catholic because of an applied humanities program at Kansas University. Well, that should be interesting. Check it out Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television. Let's go now to Cincinnati, talk with Anetta, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Anetta, what's on your mind today? Hi, um, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I emailed once before a similar question, um, and you answered it partly on the air, but I, I didn't quite get a full response. And when I heard the caller just a few minutes ago talk about Martin Luther um, and his faith and work uh, definition, it sparked me needing to call and get clarification. And let right. me just say, I know that you're going to be right and I'm going to be wrong, but I don't know why I'm wrong. So you need to explain. 
Oh, oh. So my question is, my question is that in uh, Martin Luther, in 1522, when he wrote the introduction to St. Paul's letter to the Romans, um, he had, he, this is his quote, faith cannot help doing good work constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done, but before anyone asks, it already has done them. Anyone who does not do good works in this manner is an unbeliever. It is impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. So isn't Martin Luther saying that work is part of the definition of faith? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the, the, the way you frame the question obscures the real problem with Luther's perspective. Right. The problem with Luther's perspective is not that he advocates immorality. I mean, he does in some places, but, but, but most of the time Luther advocates a Christian moral life and takes it as a given that the Christian is a moral person. All right. So that's, that's really not an issue between Lutherans and Catholics. The problem is this. What role do those works play in the question of our salvation? And for Luther, they're just evidentiary. Right, and this is the position for most most Protestants. They would say the way you know have tr- the way that you know you have true faith is because your your life has been transformed, and you have these moral works that that flow from that. Right, and uh, and that's almost all Protestants hold that. But but when they ask when you ask the question, well, does God accept you on the basis of those good works? Do they play any role in God's acceptance? That's where the difference comes in, because the Protestant's answer is emphatically no. Luther wrote in his commentary on the Galatians, God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues, right? And uh, Luther's extremely explicit about this. He wrote a sermon once called Two Kinds of Righteousness, and he differentiates the kind of righteousness that would be visible to human behavior, Right, the sort of thing that a court might adjudicate, uh, and the sort of thing that you're talking about here—the kind of the kind of good works that would flow from a life of faith that would be visible manifestations, behaviors in the world—he says that's one kind of righteousness, but it's not the kind that Christians are ultimately concerned with. He says the other kind of righteousness is the kind that is imputed to you by the sacrifice of Christ, and that when God looks upon you and accepts you, it's not for anything you have done, whether in faith or not. It is because of what Christ has done in your behalf that you access through the act of faith. So it's a vicarious uh, uh, righteousness. One, it's Jesus' what Luther would call an alien righteousness, not your own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. And for that sake, God accepts you. Now, that's very different from the Catholic point of view. The Catholic position is that faith transforms you. Grace, the grace that comes through faith transforms you such that you're, you, you, you become capable of genuinely doing good works, and on account of those, God can declare you righteous because of something that's intrinsic to you, not something that's alien and that's been imputed to you, but because you actually have become a good person. And so when God says, well done and good, good and faithful servant, he means it. It's not a kind of fiction. You really have become a good and faithful servant. Grace given through faith has this transformative effect on your life. Both traditions teach faith. Both traditions teach the necessity of good works. But they understand the significance of those works in a very different way. All right. And we thank you so much, uh, Anetta, for your call from Cincinnati. Call to communion here on EWTN. We just heard from Charmel in South Africa, who says, Good day, Tom and Dr. Andrews. I have a colleague 
who struggles with the idea that we can do the will of God. If we make our own decisions and these decisions have consequences, how do we know that we are doing, uh, what we are doing is the will of God? Yeah, thank you. Okay, so when people talk about the will of God, they can mean different things by it. And, and sometimes what people mean is, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to decide, should I, should I go to law school or should I go to seminary and, and, you know, maybe one day become a Catholic apologist? That's a question that I had to ask myself yeah, one day, you know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, let me see if I can discern the will of God in that matter. You know, and so I'm going to go to prayer, and I'm going to ask my friends to pray for me, and I'm going to try to figure out what God wants me to do. Does God want me to go to law school, or does God want me to go to seminary? Um, uh, you know, the will of God is a kind of, um, uh, almost almost to try to divine what destiny has in store for me. Uh, but there's another way we could think about the will of God, and that is the God's unchanging, permanent will regarding what constitutes the good of human life. Right, and and so things like don't murder, don't commit adultery, uh, don't steal, don't lie, uh, don't covet your neighbor's wife or his goods, uh, pursue justice, uh, the virtues, the life of charity, um, whatever you do and wherever you go, those are always the will of God. You don't have to you don't have to go to prayer and try to figure out whether God wants you to be just or not. You know, <laughs> right, right. And uh, and and even if you don't have access to biblical revelation. I mean, the history of humanity indicates that there are some sort of bedrock elements of human flourishing that can be discerned through serious introspection that constitute the basis of the natural law, and we find them emerging in almost every culture, well, certainly after the Bronze Age, you know, so the golden rule of not doing unto others what you don't want done unto you, and uh, and, and some modicum of justice and, and temperance and self-restraint, these kinds of things. And, uh, and that, that's not very hard to discern. And, and so, so you know, if, I, if I make it my purpose in life, whatever I do, you know, to live in accord with the life of virtue, then I'm, then I'm with, within the will of God. Now, when it comes to those other kinds of questions, like, well, am I supposed to go to law school? Or am I supposed to go to seminary? Um, well, then, then, you know, God gave us a brain, and he gave us judgment, and he gave us uh, prudence, and he gave people around us to give us good counsel and we make a we make a you know a good faith effort and we also have the the faculty of choice and so you know sometimes for those kinds of things there there is there may not be an answer written in stone you know a kind of destiny to be discovered i know like people love to believe in romance they love to believe that like you know there's only one girl in the world for me and i've got to find her when the truth of the matter is, is there's probably a lot of girls with whom you could be happy if you got married, and a lot of guys you could be happy with if you got married. And the important thing is, once you've once you've committed to yourself to that course of action, to that vocation, then the will of God for you is to be faithful to that woman that you chose. Yes, of course. You know, and if you let's say you choose law school, well, then the will of God for you is that you pursue that vocation with justice. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you choose apologetics and you, you pursue that vocation with justice and humility and charity, uh, but you have some agency in the matter. All right. And we thank you, Charmel, for listening to us in South Africa. Called to Communion here on EWTN. Let's go now to Adrian in San Jose, listening on YouTube this afternoon. Adrian, what's on your mind today? Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call, as always. Um, so my, my question is a, little, is a little complicated. I'm going to try to get through it as fast as I can. Um, so in the Bible where it speaks about um, if you have a problem with your brother, you take it to him personally, one-on-one, then you take two or three or more. And then finally it says to take it to the church. Now, 
my I'm confused on what exactly does that mean and what can the church do for me. My situation is that I was persecuted in the fact that my parents put a restraining order on me for correcting them morally. I told my mom, don't use God's name in vain. She said, don't tell me what to do. And, and it just, morally speaking, they just don't like to be corrected. I get it. But for them to go and file a fake, fraudulent, you know, violent thing against me, now they took it public. I took it to the church. I told the priest, and they're very reluctant to help me. And I don't even know how they can really help me. My wow. dad's involved in the church. So. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the, the, the church does have tribunals. <clears throat> they do hear legal cases, especially cases that pertain to uh, uh, issues of canon law um, and marriage, right? So there are there are areas of jurisdiction where the church absolutely passes judgment. As a matter of practicality and and uh, and pastoral discernment over centuries of reflection, for for most civil and criminal claim, claims today, the church defers to the secular courts. There are things that she retains within her own jurisdiction. Uh, uh, but when it comes to issuing a judicial verdict, she she defers to the judgment of the secular courts in a lot of matters. So, you know, in this issue, now look, I'm not I'm not a uh, a legal scholar by any stretch of the imagination. So you need to consult your own attorneys. But I think there's a couple options that you could have legally. One of them, of course, is you know, in order to have a restraining order enforced, you're you're entitled to a hearing where you put your own point of view out there and you can present you know counter evidence. And I, I hope you've had that opportunity. If not, there's probably some some uh, uh, you haven't been given judicial due process. Uh, you know, there's also uh, suits for libel and slander. If you feel like you've been maligned unfairly and has sullied your name in the public sphere, then that's that you know that could be slanderous or libelous. Um, you may have a claim there, unless of course you, unless of course you're guilty. In this case, you wouldn't, right? Um, I, personally, from the sound of your situation, uh, that's not what I would advise. That's not what I would advise. I would advise a pastoral approach, not a legal approach. And um, and that would be first of all to unburden yourself with uh, the felt need to correct your parents' uh, objectionable behavior, right? Um, because that's that's not getting you anywhere. Yeah. It's not. It, it, they're not changing, and it's alienating you from them. And whatever the reality is, they probably regard your act, your actions as uh, unwarranted and maybe uh, arrogant and hubristic. So I, I think that you, I would, if I were in your shoes, I would work for reconciliation with your parents, without insisting that they do your will. Yeah. Right. And and it's only from the basis of a trusting relationship that you can hope to be a moral influence. Adrian, thanks so much for your call. We hope uh, that you can uh, work all that out with your folks there. Thanks again. And uh, here is Hank now in Kansas watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Hank, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi there. So Howdy. I understand that Catholics believe the love which fulfills the law is infused into our soul if we don't destroy it by mortal sin. Are we supposed to feel that love, or is it just an entirely objective, mysterious character of the soul that we put our faith in from the objective sacramental evidence, regardless of our experience? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, uh, love in Catholic theology is not a passion. 
So it's not reducible to an emotion. And in fact, I mean, it would be compatible with any number of emotions if you consider the way a parent who loves a child might be angry one day and sad another and afraid another and excited another. And because all kinds of emotions are consistent with love. Love is really a disposition, a habit of the will to desire the good, to will, I should say, well, desire is ambiguous, to will the good of another person, uh, to pursue the good of another person, and to pursue a, uh, a union with them so far as it's possible in, in that particular good. And, um, and so that, that can come about psychologically in the soul um, through different channels. I mean, it might be accompanied by passionate emotion that's deeply felt, uh, but it might also be an intellectual judgment right the, the important thing is that one make the make the determination of the will to live in a certain way now if you if you live in family life as i do i'm a married man uh, i i make a settled determination to love my wife and children every day some days that comes with profound emotion sometimes it comes with profound antipathy mm. like i like my passions really don't want to fulfill on that on that determination but I make a judgment of the practical reason that that is the appropriate course of action. And so I, 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 I put one foot in front of the other, and I go out and do the loving thing, regardless of how I feel about it. Good man. All right, uh, Hank, thanks so much for your call. Jeff is watching us on YouTube. Jeff, we have about 30 seconds. What is your question, please? Jeff is not ready yet. Jeff is... Jeff. Okay, well, yeah, we're having some uh, little tech issues here, but we will work all that out. Well, we always do. So, so Jeff's question is, what did the Protestant reformers get right, apart from an example of how not to raise disputes with the Church? Is there anything we can learn from them? Um, yeah, I wrote an article one time called John Calvin Made Me a Catholic. Yes. Right? Yes. And, um, and so, you know, something that I personally learned from John Calvin was about the importance of a sacramental dimension to Christian life. Because mm. even though Calvin was a Protestant, uh, he's often regarded as the most Catholic of the reformers because of the heavy emphasis that he put upon the sacramental dimension of Christian life. Uh, Calvin said, uh, you know, that in the Eucharist we have a substantial partaking in the body and blood of the Lord, and that that's essential for the life of salvation, the life of faith. So that was that was pretty neat stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, I learned from Calvin how wrong modern evangelicalism was, because uh. I grew up in a modern Protestant church, and when I compared it to the teaching of Calvin and to the life of the uh, Protestants in Geneva, I recognized that my modern religion was a real real modern innovation that didn't reflect the mind of the earliest reformers. Um, and that caused me to lose confidence in the principle of sola scriptura and, and another thing that helped move me in the direction of the Catholic faith. So I could, I could kind of go on all day about things I learned from Protestants, but unfortunately, I'm out of time. Yes, indeed. Jeff, thanks so much for your question. And Dr. David Anders, have a great weekend. Thanks, Tom. See you on Monday right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great one. God bless.